Welcome to Retro Enjoy your voyage. and welcome to retro groove i'm adam and i'm liam and this is a podcast where we talk about the music that stands the test of time happy episode six we made it to october uh we're very excited uh i'm going to see weird al yankovic in concert for the third time in my life tomorrow amazing i saw <laughs> i saw him as a teenager um i saw him when he did the orchestra tour um a few years ago with my brother and uh now we're going again he's doing the tour it's kind of an interesting tour he's not doing any of his parody work he's doing like all of his original oh, stuff wow yeah and i don't know if that's like i don't know if if there's a specific reason for that other than just he wants to, or if it's a way to save money, I don't know. Like it's, it's just kind of a unique thing that he's doing. And, and so, you know, I've already seen him twice before, so I'm not, I don't have any negative feelings about that at all. I'm, I'm actually uh-huh. really excited about it. Um, also I'm doubly excited because emo Phillips is opening and I've never seen emo before, <laughs> so I'm excited about that. He's incredible. That's awesome. Um, I wonder, I mean, I bet you that you will hear like some deeper cuts then on this Weird yeah. Al tour because it's stripped back from all that other stuff. Right. That's and amazing. Like, and like you were talking about with like the, the Rage concert that you went to, I've purposefully not looked up like set lists from other shows, like what he's been playing because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm excited about the, the surprise aspect. So, yeah. Uh, and it's at the Moody theater, which, uh, is the, the best sounding room that I've ever experienced in my life. So right. I saw Radiohead there like 12 years ago. It was incredible. Uh, 11 years ago, whenever it was that they did Austin city limits, um, so I'm stoked. I'm well, very, I'm, very happy. I'm blanking. What's your Weird Al album? We obviously did a whole episode on Weird Al, but what, like, if you, if you had your album, like the one that did it for you or you started listening to him, like, what's, is there a song on the album that is your album where you're like, I hope he plays that song? Um, I honestly think it's probably going to be Frank's 2000 inch TV. Okay. Off of Alapalooza. <laughs> okay. Alapalooza. Um, I feel like Al- I, I could go any number of directions with whatever my Weird Al album is because I came in at a certain point and like, obviously, uh, I loved um, the uh, Even Worse album mm-hmm. and uh the the nevermind parody. I can never remember the name of the album. Off the Deep uh, End. Off the Deep End, yes. Yeah. 
Um, but then Alapalooza, that was just like, you know, coming of age, Jurassic Park was enormous. Um, I got it on CD as opposed to on tape. So that's kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, that's the, probably the one I've listened to the most. Um, all right. No, what is Frank's 2000 inch TV off of? Now you got I, me like, I'm just thinking like, cause mine, mine is right after that. Mine's bad hair day. And then running with scissors too. Like yeah. back to back, those two those are, are huge for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, like, if I heard the night Santa went crazy or Albuquerque, <laughs> I would lose oh, Albuquerque. it, dude. Oh, my God. If Dan, he played Albuquerque, right? Dan's coming with me. And if he plays Albuquerque, Dan yeah, is going to have a conniption. And it's yeah. going to be amazing. I feel I was, like it's so funny because it's a long age lines. Like, you're just a little bit older yep. than me. And it's so, like, that exact age that you get into weird al when you're in our space exactly of like it just hits at the right time it's so i think it's almost predictable that that would be completely dance, for sure. yeah, yeah 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 i i would i would venture to say running with scissors is dance um but i was right frank's 2000 inch tv is on alapalooza so nice. so that would be my like uh my my pie in the sky wish list for the deep cut <laughs> yeah that he well, might go into I'll say one thing, because I did just look at set list stuff. I'm not going to give anything away, I promise. Okay. Don't get worried. I'm getting nervous. There's, n- I, I'm not seeing consistency. So, oh. so it's all over the place. That's all, all I'm saying. Place. So even if you did look at this thing, which I don't think you should, I totally agree with you. It's a good call. <laughs> I, I do the same thing. But it He's not looks playing like the same stuff every night. I'm not. I'm not seeing a whole lot of consistency here. So you have wow. no idea what you're in for. Okay, tomorrow, great. Which is so freaking cool. That's, like, I that love is, it. That's awesome. I love um, it. Now I wonder if he will make an exception though, and do Amish Paradise. Oh, because, see, I was thinking about that. Right, because we lost Coolio and Legend. Yeah, gone. That's yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit here, I think just, you know, to kind of celebrate, uh, his, his legacy and his impact a bit. Um, but before we get into that, we're here to talk about Steve Albini today. Yes. Yeah. It's very exciting. Um, legendary producer. Um, obviously we did, uh, a while back. It seems like it must've been a year ago now that we did the Butch Vig episode. Maybe yeah, even longer. I, I think probably. it was more than a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It Which was only, so crazy to think. <laughs> it's, it's so weird to, to yeah. imagine that yeah. we started, you know, in the early part of last year. It doesn't feel real. Mm-hmm. Um, right. cause we're getting close to the end of this year. So we're in mm-hmm. October now. So, yep. um, yeah, we're going to talk about Steve Albini. Um, you know, one of my favorite producers and also, um, you know, a member of, of, uh, a band that I adored growing up and still do produce some of my favorite records from some of my favorite artists. So yeah, I'm definitely excited to go down, uh, that rabbit hole. And I've been had it in the back of my mind kind of ever since we started, um, doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we definitely need to talk about Coolio, before we do that, what's been going on with you lately? Um, went to another concert. I got to see the Gaslight Anthem, which is just, you know, if if you have a band, that's probably it for me. Um, like, I look, there's a ton of bands I love that mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. But um, Brian Fallon and that whole crew have, it's like ever since I, f- I heard that 
uh, 59 sound back in the day. Like, uh, mm-hmm. must have been, I guess that was 2009, but it was like this stomach churning moment where I'm like, I'm, this is it. Like you find, <laughs> you find your, you find your connection your and it just it huh. blooms inside of you. Oh my God. Um, and so they, he split off and he did his solo stuff and they're doing a reunion tour. Um, nice. And it was great. And I'd never been to this venue that they were playing. It was on a pier in Manhattan. So like they're cool. yeah, they're like set outside against um a bridge. I think it was the Brooklyn Bridge. Um so they're playing in front of the Brooklyn Bridge and you've got the city skyline to your left and it's comfortable out because really it's cool. September in, yeah. in New England, right? And so it's it's all good. Um See, it was a great time. Played awesome, and I, I, I had that moment. And again, like we, just like we were talking about with Weird Al. Although my wife swears that I've seen him play this song before, but <laughs> I don't know about that, um, or I don't know where I was mentally. But like, somebody held up a sign at the show that said it had like lights, like glowing lights on it, like electrical lights. Oh man, they went all and out. It, they did. And it said Blue Dahlia on it. Now Blue Dahlia is, uh, if you bought the deluxe version of their fourth album, it was like a B-side that was added on. Oh, deep um, cut. It was. And like, I always ask, cause it's such a good song. And I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this where you're just like, why wasn't that on the freaking album right so good and (laughs) i got to i asked him that at one point like years ago and he was like yeah it's a great song it just didn't fit with what we were trying that like it didn't yeah gel with the the thing but we didn't want to lose it right it's become this like fan favorite thing but i don't think i've ever heard them play it and it's probably my favorite if if not it's like top three but it's probably my favorite song by this band man and dude when i tell you and I'm, a, I'm an excitable person. You've seen it happen. Like, <laughs> I get smiley and winky and squinty and giggly. And like, when I when he said, well, all right, you made this cool sign. Yeah, we'll play that song. And they rip into the first chord. chord I freaked nice. out, dude. I grabbed my wife and I'm like, I can't believe this is oh happening. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, what a great was, moment. It, it was magical, dude. Like, to have that experience of like... I, this thing is happening in real time. Right. I, I feel like I don't get that as much anymore. Like there's... No. It's still exciting to see live music, obviously, and, and music can always be exciting. I We do this podcast. Like I love yeah. talking about music and listening to music, but like to have that like in my blood visceral moment of just f- pure joy and fandom. Like Absolutely. I, it, it was this buzz. It was yeah. so great. So... um. That's amazing. Might yeah, be when a the good artist plays uh, that song, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. That might be a good topic um, for an expand your mind because oh, you talk that. about yeah. Gaslight Anthem, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah that's fair. <laughs> it's yeah. just not a band that I ever really like. I know of them only because of you. Like, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, it's a very northeast thing. Like they they have their little pockets here or there, but it's very it's very Jersey, Long Island. Like they they just they resonate there for sure. Yeah, and I yeah. I guess yeah, I left the northeast in like 2002. So Yeah. And they, it was they I were missed after it. That. it was like 06, 07 is when they came around. Actually. I missed it. So yeah, that's what it was. Um All but, right. Yeah. Cool. So we have um the unfortunate um, task of yeah. 
talking about another legend Mm -hmm. that uh, has left this plane of existence. Uh, Rest in peace to Coolio. Yeah, Um, yeah. I got the I got the text about it like while I was at the Gaslight Anthem show. Oh wow! Actually, yeah. Like I was I was standing there and. For my work, like we have to stay on top of that stuff a bit. Right. Like if something happens, I'm always, you know, got it in the back of my head. Like if it's in my kind of wheelhouse, then I kind of have to drop everything in a news sense and go into that framework. You right. Know? And, and so when I saw this, I texted my teammate in the hip hop space and I was like, look, this is like, this is going down. And, yeah. she, you know, she had to make a bunch of phone calls and stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, it's. It's always sad when you hear this kind of stuff. And he he's such an interesting um, artist because, like, that era of the 90s where hip-hop became mainstream uh, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. In, a, in a commercial way, it, the authenticity of those artists and what they had experienced... Um, you can't really understate it. Like when you think of NWA, like those guys lived that stuff. And I'm not oh, saying that absolutely. the hip hop artists now don't, but like there has been generations since of some sort of affluence or opportunity even to do things where maybe your lifestyle is rough, but like, I mean, Coolio joined the baby crips when he was 11 you know like he like yeah lived on the streets before the hip before hip-hop was even like a viable thing he mm-hmm. was in a gang seeing people get murdered in high school mm-hmm. you know like in his school in the school bathroom see right that, you know like in compton so um so yeah i guess my my point is like yeah there's there's this window of time where you had these quote-unquote pop stars he was a pop star right like he it's a massive turned out that way yeah huge yeah but like a pop star who had this crazy rough background of somebody who had been through absolute hell yeah um and and then got thrown into a machine like I, i i don't know what else you can expect in a situation like that it's a it's a difficult thing to go through for sure and to have that success um is always going to come with uh drug possibilities and a lot of money and a lot of people around you and stuff so and nobody to tell you no no every you know at, at that point it's like uh and he even talks about it there i was because i've been in such a a weird owl uh, headspace the past few days leading up to the concert. Um, and then with, with Coolio's passing, of course, you know, there was a lot of crosstalk, uh, about Mm -hmm. Weird Al and there's, there's this quote, there's this quotation from Coolio where an interviewer asks him about, um, you know, what, what happened there, you know, people are, always want me to ask like, you know, did you, did you really say no to weird Al? Like, are you guys cool now? Like what's, what's the deal? And he talks about how he, he admits that he was wrong and he Mm. like, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't put on like a tough guy act or anything like that. He's literally like, you know, that, that was, that was dumb of me. And I wish 
that at that point in my life and my team around me, that somebody had told me not to do that, not to, you know, make this statement that it was disrespectful and everything because uh, he says a couple years later I listened to the song and I was like okay that's actually pretty funny <laughs> yeah um and you know it's he also talks about how you know this is the guy that parodied Michael Jackson and like huge artists and it's like an honor uh almost to be to be parodied by Weird Al so there's it was just really cool to 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 see him especially like you talked about with the, you know, the tough upbringing that he had to just, you know, come, uh, come out and just be completely vulnerable like that and say, look, I was, I was wrong about that. And I wish that somebody had told me no. Yeah. I, the weird thing that always struck me about that contention, right. Is that he himself went through a very similar thing with that song, to preface its creation, because mm. the song is "Pastime Paradise" by Stevie Wonder. By Stevie Wonder. And if you go yep. and listen to, if you go and listen to that, like it's the song. It's just yes. the song. He obviously tweaks it, and then all of the lyrics and the subject matter and the heart, it 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 completely transforms it into a new song. Right. But Stevie Stevie didn't allow him to do that initially. Like when he proposed it to Stevie at first to do Gangster's Paradise, mm-hmm. he Stevie Wonder declined it because he was like, it's riddled with profanity. And so when you yeah. go back to the end result, Coolio went and cleaned it up so that he could get Stevie's approval. And then to then oh, have wow. to have then Weird Al's interpretation of the interpretation of pastime marriage right, right, right. have the same kind of like barriers or, or red tape or something to it is interesting. But as you're saying, like the subject matter of Gangster's Paradise is exactly what we're talking about. Right. right? It's this commentary on like, this is a waste, guys. Like the lifestyle that I was in, it's just a waste of life. It's a waste Mm -hmm. of time. It's futile. It's sad. It's depressing. It's awful. And it shouldn't exist. Um, And so I can see why then like he's making a commentary. It's a very personal record and then somebody wants to turn it into like use it as a joke. But he did the same thing to what, Stevie Wonder's like that wasn't what Stevie Wonder's song was about. So he he reinterpreted it and somebody reinterpreted that. Right. And I think too he he probably eventually realized what a, a lot of other artists do is that if Weird Al parodies your song, it's bringing attention to the song. Like yes. it's 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 going to boost your visibility as an artist, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um and I don't think Weird Al has done anything disrespectful in his entire life, (laughs) at least professionally, you know, in his public life. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of a badge of honor. Um, uh, especially just with such a long career. Um, but, um, I don't know if you want to mention Keenan and Kel. We, I mean, we gotta, yes, yes. And, and I feel like Nickelodeon music, I want to do an episode about Nickelodeon music at some point, just because it's such an important thing for for me growing up um but i remember when keenan and kel was being created and they were like these teaser trailers and there was like this little interview segment with keenan and kel and they were like 
Coolio's got to do the theme song. And I'm sure it was almost like a commercial. Like, who, who knows what actually went on behind the scenes. Right. Um, but I, I wouldn't put it past it. them, though. Yeah, I it's got to be true. <laughs> yeah, they were just like they were like, yeah. The producers came to us and said, "Who do you want to do the theme song?" And we we're like, "Uh, Coolio," um, and <laughs> man, that was he was like in the theme song. Like, yeah, the he's in the like, intro to the show. <laughs> <laughs> he's like sitting on the couch with them and playing with them and stuff. And like, it's weird because so all that uh, were you like a Nickelodeon kid in that sense yeah, or not so much but like that was like the very i was just barely like getting too old for nickelodeon quote unquote Got it. Yeah, uh, yeah. at the time that like all that and you know i was of the era of snick doug uh ren and stimpy uh, rocco's modern life you know what i mean stuff like that so uh, right. that was a little bit like I was just getting it. <laughs> yeah, I got a rock my rock- life. Shirt. Oh, and is, look, there's uh, is that Hey Arnold behind you? I do have a you hey Arnold, Arnold behind me. Yeah, no, I'm a Nickelodeon kid, man. I grew up in that generation, so yeah, love it. Um, but so there's a thing. Not to go too deep into this, but all that was SNL for kids, right? right like, basically, that was, the, that mm-hmm. was the premise, and so all that. The theme song was done by TLC, which yes. I didn't even know who TLC was, right? But like, I that was a cool song. Like, I liked that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would have performances on the show, not every yep. episode, but sometimes. And you had Aaliyah. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the the brat. Um, yes, Maya One Twelve. Like they they were repping hip hop and R and B at that time right. to a really white kid in the <laughs> suburbs <laughs> it was like amazing yeah that's um, their key demographic is the white suburban yeah, kids like white suburban <laughs> kids being exposed to this hip-hop that i didn't even know i was being exposed yes. to um very so, yeah, cool so like so i remember when keenan and kale got their spinoff show and they were just like man it's got to be coolio i was like Dude, Coolio's awesome. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I, it's like, Keaton McKell like Coolio. I mean, I got to like Coolio too then. Um, totally. So, I, like, that, I, it was a great theme song. Mm-hmm. It was super fun. Um, I, it, it's a bummer to see the ultimate trajectory. I mean, he had a reality show. He did some Big yeah. Brother stuff. He had, he relapsed with drugs. He had some run ins with the law. Um, it's, it's rough, you know, like you, you don't know what, um, what's going to come out of working in, in this industry, but he also did, he did, he was like super engaged, uh, with environmentalism and Mm -hmm. education. Like he did a lot of good, um, he used his fame for good in a lot of senses. And he also, um, I feel like he was pretty humble. Like he definitely did a lot of cameo work. He would pop up on TV shows as himself a bunch, you know, it wasn't Uh like ice cube, like, you know, are we there yet stuff? Like he was just like, yeah, I'm Coolio. I'm here. Like he's he's on (laughs) Futurama and stuff. Um, He would, he would bubble up in these places and he was like this cultural icon that everybody kind of remembered as like, yeah, that was a good dude. I like, I like that guy. And he like really made a powerful statement back in the day. So, yeah. Rest in peace, Coolio, man. Like rest that, in peace, Coolio. Yeah, yeah, big big impact here. Man. Um. All right. So so we're gonna be talking Steve Albini, right? Yes. Okay. So, I, 
some people listening to this will know who that is. Some people just know the name. Some people won't know at all, maybe. Um, right. But they, they probably are familiar without knowing it. Um, I wanted to point out, you know, obviously we mentioned we did the the, the invigorating uh, Butch yep. Vig in, uh, episode ages ago at this point. I moved away from puns in the titles. I've, yeah. <laughs> I've outgrown that a little bit. <laughs> I liked it. Um, I thought it was a good part. It was a good episode, though. Yeah. Um, but that one, you know, ahead. we obviously talked about his very polished approach to. He is a producer that you can tell when you're listening to a Butch very Vig polished album. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something, admittedly, that I love. Like, I, that's something that, that tends to speak to me when I look right. through his Butch Vig's catalog of what he's worked on it's hit after hit after hit for me um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he did nevermind right um and and on the heels of that it dovetails nicely into the fact that steve albini would then be the band's choice for their final uh their follow-up album after nevermind in utero so kind of complements a a past retro groove episode and also uh, also kind of compliments our uh, our last episode about CBGBs because as right. we're talking both about the splintered kind of art rock, hard rock, punk rock, you know, all mm-hmm. those different things that came out of that CBGB scene, um, the impact that it had, um, and, and I'll argue that it, it's also just the hilly crystal way and demeanor and perspective uh, made its way to Montana, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, to impact this person. So it, it almost is too fitting to go from talking about how hilly crystal viewed and fostered artists and what CBGBs was able to do. And then to say, and then in the next episode, here's a exactly. really great example of something that came out of that, which is Steve Albini in Montana. Absolutely. And so what we're referencing here is, um, you know, so Steve Albini, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, was born in California, but um, uh, eventually they moved to Montana and he grew up there um, as a as a teenager on a school field trip was introduced to um the debut album of the Ramones, uh, by a a friend, um, changed his life. Just obsessed. He became obsessed. He just listened to it over and over again. Absolutely. And it completely changed the trajectory of what he wanted to do, uh, with his life. Um, he buys all the Ramones albums up to that point. Um, just wants, more than anything to, to be in a band. And it was just the, the abrasiveness of the sound is what struck him, struck a chord with him and no pun intended and really, uh, launched his love of that kind of raw abrasive music, uh, for the rest of his life up to today. And so, you know, if you know anything about Steve Albini's, uh, own music, um, it is very abrasive, but um you know and also another part of this story is the story of the the birth of punk music in chicago Mm -hmm. um so 
you know, he graduates from high school, um, begins his college career at uh, NU and actually for journalism, um, but uh, doesn't ever end up being a professional journalist because uh, while he's in college, he begins, uh, and even, you know, a bit while he was in high school, begins playing in bands, um, you know, creating his own music, um, giving out his, his tapes to anybody in Chicago who would, and he, he just wants more than any, he doesn't want to be a journalist anymore. He wants to be in a band. Yeah. And he's, he's a very detail oriented person. Yes. He's, um, he's digging through these records as he's kind of figuring out that this is a scene that speaks to him and he's looking through the credits. Like he's, he's compulsively listening to the Ramones and then um, he's looking at the names uh, of the engineers and the producers and the, the people that they're thanking. And then he's finding those at his local record store, um, you know, secondhand store, mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. you know, um, and he's kind of beautiful minding, the scene because there was I, we don't have to, there's no internet no internet right? like mm-hmm. there's no and there's no scene in Montana so right. he he can go to Chicago and he's already walking in there with this semi comprehensive understanding that he's put together of who these punk bands are um, he's done the deep dive and mm-hmm. he's he's got this attention to to detail that has like he's he's 10 steps ahead of everybody else in that sense like he already yeah. has walked in there and knows so much about what he's going to try to do here right super smart guy just like a walking encyclopedia mm-hmm. um you know you hear him talk about anything whether it's you know microphones or uh, a a particular band or a particular manufacturing process or poker <laughs> and and it's just like he's just a wealth of knowledge it's just all up yeah. there um but yeah he um around 1981 um starts getting into uh recording bands and recording his own projects and you know that kind of begins his his producing career but before that really gets um, underway, um, he meets, uh, the members of the Chicago punk band Naked Ray Gun, um, which if it's not obvious is a direct play on the Sex Pistols, Naked Ray Gun, Sex Pistols. So, you know, they're basically the, they're like the early punk band in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, ends up spending time with them. Um, and ultimately two of the members of Naked Raygun join his project, Big Black. Yeah. Um, extremely abrasive music, both sonically and lyrically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just gets very explicit and um, almost like just egregiously offensive with the the subject matter of the lyrics in the big black songs. Um, but it's more, more so than just like being young and stupid. It's more of a, a commentary on and a middle finger to the corporate rock world, just the, or, and even, you know, society at large, um, which is kind of the ethos of punk 
uh, at its very core or one of yeah. one of them. It's an it's a constant attempt in every way, and it's sincere and genuine to not be commodifiable. Right. Like he doesn't want to create something that somebody could package up and sell very easily, and that doesn't yep. interest him as a fan either. He doesn't want to listen to that, and he doesn't want to necessarily make that. Um, but he also does have an appreciation for the various visions of of other artists and whatnot, right? Um, right, absolutely. His vision, as he's embodying it in Big Black, um, he will not... Uh, he they they did it was completely DIY. I guess is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Right, like, no contracts. They did everything themselves. Refused right. to sign any kind of contracts. They they booked their own tours. Uh, did or paid for their own recording. Um, they they just did it all themselves, and um, that solidified his just philosophy on the way that things should be, uh, from, from there on out, you know, even, uh, up to this day, you know I mean? Still refuses to, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but you know, does a recording engineering job gets paid for the job and that's it. Doesn't try to take royalties on the recording or anything like that. It's just, all right, I did the job. Mm -hmm. That's it. I yep, got paid for my work for and yep, that's yep. it. I recorded yep. you guys. Got a paycheck. <laughs> right. Right. So um and then, you know, in contrast to as we were talking about Butch Vig and his production style, very polished and sparkly and um dreamy sounding. Um, you know, Butch is a pop producer, mm-hmm. no matter who he's recording, which is why Nevermind is a is a pop record. And coming back to uh the Nirvana in utero s- transition from Nevermind to in utero a little bit. Um, and then we can get back to the timeline here. Um, Kurt didn't feel like Nevermind sounded like Nirvana. It was like this, yeah. this wasn't the way that we wanted our record to sound. Right. The label so, was really jazzed about it. Yeah, Radio absolutely. was really jazzed about it. And if you think about who we were when we were listening to Nirvana at that time, like Nevermind sounded very different from everything at that yeah. point. It was it was a paradigm shift. But like you're saying, to that band, they were like, no, it's supposed to be even more like this, and it's supposed to be more dynamic, right? It's supposed to there's supposed to be this like power pop mixed with the abrasive rock. Mm-hmm. Um and and it wasn't captured there it was all like polished and and not homogenized that's unfair but like it it didn't encapsulate what they were looking to do right yeah kurt never and probably never would have allowed it to become homogenized but you know they they were such an abrasive band and butch's production work i don't know if i would go so far as to say softened it up but Mm. Um, you know, sanded off the rough edges, cleaned it up, and made it a lot more palatable. Mm. Um, and that's not what Kurt wanted. Um, it's 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 no secret, and we're not you know breaking any uh, <laughs> barriers or anything here by saying that Kurt was very uncomfortable with his level of fame. 
Uh, Not what he had intended, to say the least. And so within utero, he, he wanted to make a record that sounded the way that he had always wanted Nirvana to sound. And Steve's uh, philosophy, for lack of a better word, when it comes to recording a record is he wants to make the record sound the way that your ears would hear the sound of the band playing in front of you. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way that most uh, producers do things, especially not in the, you know, pop music and, and corporate rock world has to sound pretty. And he also seemed to take great joy in recording bands that um, just had a very abrasive sound with rough edges and a punk uh, aspect to it anyway. Um, So, and you can hear it in the Pixies records too. They sound Surfer Rosa to, you know, almost any of their other records sounds very different. Um, well, so, so you have big black, Mm -hmm. um, wrapping up, splitting up, breaking up in 87, I think it was right. Mm -hmm. Um, and right around that time you have, uh, the Pixies had their EP come out and they're working towards, uh, a full length album. They, the the label 4AD revisits the producer mm-hmm. that they had worked with before. I think it was Gary Smith, um, and you know he had done the initial EP at minimal cost to the band as like a, a test and just working it out and starting a relationship or whatever. But when it mm-hmm. finally came to like let's do the deal, let's make a full album together. Yep, um, he wanted to be paid properly for it. He wanted to get um, the, the, the rate that someone normally would get in yep. that position um, and the royalties and, and the kind of cuts and proper billing and whatnot. Um, and the label balked and the band, I, it seems also felt very uncomfortable with yeah. like their first album being with somebody who was going to be making these asks of them. Um, and so, Apparently, there's this employee that was working in the label warehouse in 4AD. I mean, they're still they're still around. They're part of mm-hmm. the Beggars Group. They're they've an iconic indie label, um, but were were small, at, even smaller at that time than they ever were. Yeah. Um, and someone in the ma- warehouse made a suggestion to the co-founder who was like sorting this out at the label to look up Steve, just mm-hmm. like threw the name out there and said. You know, this guy's not going to ask you for a bunch of money. He's not nope. going to insert <laughs> not himself <at> <laughs> in with the band or anything. And he really knows his stuff, you know? Like, he's... Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, like, he's the guy. And so Steve goes and they, they reach out to him. Um, price tag seems good to them. Uh, yeah. Do you know what... Do you remember what it was? <laughs> Did no, you, I don't. No. Steve's... Steve Albini's... Uh, producer fee on that album was fifteen hundred dollars <laughs> flat <amazing>. no royalties <laughs> just nothing that's on it. top yeah right <laughs> so just pay me for the work yeah so um, one of the most yeah. iconic albums <laughs> fifteen hundred dollars that's it like yeah. 
he probably Steve probably could have. Re- I mean, forget in utero. He he probably could have retired just on Surfer Rosa royalties alone. Yeah. And nope, it could because that's not his thing. It's it's not what he does. He yeah. doesn't want to. He doesn't want to do that to the artist. Right. Well, so what he did, and it it basically initiates the the or starts the process and and how he's going to function throughout the remainder of his career mm-hmm. is he meets with the band he gets an idea of what they're trying to do and they went to the studio the next day and they just knock it out like he yep. knows how to set up the mics and like the technical know-how the guy has read all the manuals he's figured it all out he uh, is fascinated with the science of yes. it all, of mm-hmm. the acoustics and how everything works. He's spent the time to think up problems so that he can then solve the fake problems that could come about so that he knows when he's in the situation and something's not sounding the right way. Well, mm-hmm. I know that if I switch this over or I adjust this, it will fix that. Um, the guy is meticulous in that um, and so uh, the label is then quoted as saying, like, he's the ideal man to hire to work with the band. He tells you exactly how long it's going to take because mm-hmm. he knows, he knows, like, you're not going to sit in the studio and just mess around a bunch of times. Like, he's going to have it ready to go and you're going to knock it out. And he doesn't, like, he's moving on then after that, right? Well, especially um, for $1,500. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's we need the thing. In and out. I need to get on to the next session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're high, like, he needs to pay the bills. So, you're hiring me for a week, two weeks, whatever. I'm going to deliver for you exactly what you need. You don't have to worry about it at all. I'm going to I'm going to set it up so that you walk in there and what you want recorded will be recorded yep. in a in a genuine manner. Um and it's and it's done. And there's no there's no hidden fees. There's no right. uh, there's no like <laughs> between off the, the lines contracts. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, I'm sure they got screwed in plenty of other ways, but it, it was not on uh, right. record record producing royalties. Right, right, um, right. And for my money, the best sounding Pixies record. Yeah, it sounds incredible. Now, so I I want to pause here for just a second mm-hmm. um, and just say and, and again. We've said it in the past. I'll, I'll I'll echo it here. Like I, this sub area of of rock, this sub genre, this this era, um, is actually a bit of a point of almost insecurity for me because um, it's I was too young for it. Um, I went back to it, and I can appreciate some of it, but it's not um, it's not my inherent space mm-hmm. when we're you know we're going to be talking about the breeders um even even nirvana like that era um but the gatekeepy nature of like that scene at, has always been kind of daunting for me like it always has felt that way um and so it was interesting then to see there was a, a an interview that Steve Albini had done where he was saying that like he loved working with the Pixies. He was just like, yeah, they're all really great, but he was never a, a Pixies fan. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, like he, he's it like, was a yeah, job. music's good. It was, mm-hmm. music's good. And he, again, back, just like Hilly Crystal was like, uh, 
they have a vision. I respect them as creative artists who are trying to do something that is wholly unique, and I'm going to help them do the thing that they want to do. Right. And I think Kim is the best singer I've ever heard, and they have this unique vision, and so I'm going to do what they need me to do to support their vision. Um, but it's it, it's funny, like, he goes to talk about how the music that he produces isn't necessarily the music that he wants to listen to as a fan. Right. And it almost, it almost comforted me a little bit. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. So like, I, I don't have to be like fully beholden to, to all of this. Like everybody right. gets to have their, their opinions and their experiences with music. Um, but it's this like penult, this, this like, uh, uh, pedestal that music gets put on and rightfully so mm-hmm. I can I can I can hear it and I can understand it and it means a lot to people um and I'm I want to know like I want you to tell me about what this pixies like, music <laughs> means to you like well, tell me about the pixies, I mean but so yeah. like with anything else uh, a lot of it is just the the time that it first got into you and what you were going through as a person at the time that has a ton to do with it. Um, and you know, I, I got through the Pixies catalog, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't a Pixies fan in 1988. I was six, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It was, so it was, it was later on, um, in the, in the mid to late nineties, when, um, you know, Nirvana was huge and, you know, um, again, really no internet and then very, very early internet, um, in the mid nineties. And so the way that you, a lot of times found out about other bands is, you know, looking at the liner notes looking at, okay, mm-hmm. who recorded this album, who recorded that album, what, what other albums, the, the label, um, um, the interviews where the artists talk about other bands that they were influenced by. Mm. And I kept hearing this band Pixies come up um, with, you know, Kurt talking about how he was influenced by the Pixies and, you know, uh, the Breeders had a hit with Cannonball. Um, oh God, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember w- what year that was. But I think it was pretty close after that. And, and you're a Breeders fan, too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so it, it just kind of spawned from there. I found out uh, about the Pixies and their connection to... Steve and that whole, it just, it's just a web and it's just like pulling on strings and seeing where it leads. And, um, I, I fell in love with the pixies and, um, it was, it just kind of went from there. I, I couldn't even really necessarily put my finger on what they mean to me so much, Mm -hmm. but it, especially at the time, there was there's something about the dynamic of the group it it's a very give and take kind of polarity that they have you've got kim's voice which is you know 
very soft and kind of broken sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got, you've got Frank Black's voice, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he can kind of croon a little bit, but mostly he's just screaming at the top of his lungs. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the soft verse, loud chorus thing that they're so famous for that influenced so many other artists. And I don't know, something about it clicked with me. And, um, I just really, once I, once I picked up my first Pixies record, it was like, that's all I listened to for like a year. Wow. Um, you kind of albinied it. Kind of. It was just, it it became kind of an obsession. Like, uh, I learned, uh, how to play the songs on my guitar. Um, I would listen to the bass lines and kind of, that was one of the first times I remember listening to music. And I don't know if, if, if non musicians do this, but like I would hum or hear or sing like harmony lines to the music that don't actually exist in the song. But like I've listened to the song so many times that I'll, that's like the earliest memory that I have of doing that is to, to pixie songs. You mean not Um, shout it, screaming that in your room and your parents are walking by being like, Oh my God, this kid. Like, cause I definitely did that. <laughs> I blast it and singing my own harmonies. And my dad would be like, all right, you got to chill out, dude. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it was usually in the car. Okay. Um, cool. <laughs> or just humming the harmony with headphones on or whatever. Um, yeah. Don't need, you know, my mom or dad walking in while I'm screaming along with, you know, I don't know. <laughs> don't need that. You and Kim Deal are doing a duo. Exactly. See, I, yeah. No, that's uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Harmonizing to, you know, I don't know, wave of mutilation or something. It's like, I don't want to explain to my mom wave of mutilation. <laughs> yeah. It's better than singing along to a big black so, song. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd never really, I had never, now to bring it back around, I had never. I never got into Big Black. I had seen the records in the stores, but um, I ended up really getting into Shellac. So mm-hmm. Steve, uh, after Big Black ceases to exist, he well, okay, so he first um, forms a band that I refuse to even say the title of. Yeah, that's and how th- that's that's how <laughs> abrasive he is. We we're not even going to say it on this. Not podcast. even going to say it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you can look it up if you're that curious. Um, Go for it. But not safe for work. And uh, and then in 92, uh, forms Shellac. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, instantly recognizable from just, I mean, it sounds like he plugged the, plugs the guitar into a microwave or something. It's just an, a completely unearthly guitar tone. Like, do you think that you found that because you were tapped into that Pixies breeders scene like that, like what was happening there? Like, how do you, cause it was just part of the web. Okay. So I still didn't really at the time, like I'd heard the name, um, but I didn't really get into, um, like the, the more deeper cuts of, you know, 
the names of the producers and stuff like that until like 2000 and, and when I started working at a record store and stuff like that. Okay. Um, it was just like, you know, either a friend recommended it or I happened to be driving around with a friend and they put on an album that I had never heard. And, um, you know, that, that was huge back then. That was a lot of how you discovered new music was, you know, through friends. Um, there was no, there was no file sharing yet. So mostly it was friends making mixtapes for you. Or I, I had this one, I had a friend that ended up being very like-minded that I'm still in touch with to this day. And at one point, uh, you know, the, the, you have one, I think still the massive CD binder oh, with, yeah. where you have hundreds of CDs it's in my in car. It. Yeah. It's still yeah. in your car. Um, yeah. one day we were just like, we just traded. I was like, here, man, he, here's my heart in a, Ugh. we have kind of a special relationship to this day, even though we hardly ever talk anymore. Here's Things my heart my in a binder. Just tightened up. Like exactly. I just tightened up all over the place. <laughs> I gave him my CD binder. He gave me his. Stuff yeah. that I had never heard of before. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff like Don Caballero and um, Morphine and all these amazing bands that um, I never, never even heard of. And so just stuff like that. Stuff that you don't really, you don't really share music like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's how I discovered a lot of these bands. Wow. And uh and eventually like you know especially once I started working in the record store you start to see a thread like wow Steve Albini's done a lot of cool stuff <laughs> like he yeah. this guy is on every record that I love uh the Breeders first album the, you know, the my favorite Pixies album um In Utero which is my favorite Nirvana album like mm-hmm. it's just bonkers um yeah. Well, and so you weren't the only one who was a fan, although unknowingly a fan of his work, because as mm-hmm. we've mentioned pre- previously, Kurt Cobain and and Nirvana as a whole right. sought out Albini yes. for In Utero because he was a fan, just like you, of the Breeders and Pixies albums. He wanted to to create an album that represented Nirvana the way that those exactly he felt that those albums represented those artists. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, um, it, he has at this point purchased his studio, mm. uh, electric audio, and, um, he got quite a bit more than $1,500 for yeah. his fee, but and he didn't want to do this. He didn't like he he opposed it. He wrote a little op-ed about it not wanting to work with the band to, to begin with. He called them REM with a fuzzbox. You know, like he <laughs> he didn't he cuz he saw what Nevermind was and it it was in the face of everything that Steve Albini exactly. stood for, right? He he looked at this and he was just like this is a sellout band on a massive uh, label mm-hmm. and it's going to be a ton of garbage swinging swimming around on this thing and right. they sold out to commodify this abrasive uh rock music from right. from the northwest um and ultimately he uh gets won over by them like they they continue to pursue him and he gets won mm-hmm. over because he sees that they're actually 
this genuine deal. They're, yeah. They are the real deal that is just deep in the machine. And yes. he's like, okay, well, I can help with this. I can help you deliver mm-hmm. on your vision then, right? And we're going to do it my way, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. We're going to rent a studio in the middle of nowhere uh-huh. with no said, corporate suits around. Well, he said, like, you need to pay for this out of your pocket. So it was, what, 100 k 100000 This time, instead of instead of Instead of $1,500. Um, but still so no more. royalties. No royalties, no, no, uh, yeah, nothing. nothing, nothing on beyond that. No thresholds of sales or anything that comes on to that. No points. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he tells the band or he suggests to the band, pay for this out of your pocket. Like yep. you pay, you pay me. And then we can keep the label and the manager and all that. Just keep them out of it. Like as best as we can, because labels can always try to find ways to recoup and claim money. Like it's always a mess. But they said, yep. he said, pay me and we can keep them out. And they didn't allow any of the management label into the facility at all. They mm-hmm. were just like, it was just Albini and the band doing this. Courtney Love apparently shows up at one point and it's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> as, as is the story of Nirvana. Um, but yeah, like it, it, he let the band pick the takes that they liked, right? Yep. Um, and Cobain walks away from it. And this is where things get dicey. And, and it will be something that you continue to hear down the road on this because Steve is set in his ways. And he does have a way of uh, – he, he's got a moral code and, a, and, a, and an ethos that he sticks to. Mm-hmm. Um, so – According to some, they walk away very happy. Cobain's quoted saying it's the easiest recording session that they've ever yeah. done. He got the right. album he wanted. Right. Because it sounds but, like Nirvana sounds. To, which is what Steve is saying that he is being told by the band at that point, right? Um, but things are never that simple. There's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions, and there's also a lot of people who want a lot of money out of this situation. Of course. And so and clout. walking out of those sessions with their the the recordings as they are, the label is very unhappy and management is very unhappy. Of course. They're talking about how, you know, the Nirvana sound that they've captured here and what the Nirvana sound is here is not commercially mm-hmm. viable. It's not palatable for radio, um, and and that the whole session should be scrapped. And there's this back and forth. Um, there's a lot of doubt that gets sown, and um, ultimately, like the band starts asking to remix the album, and they ask for the master tapes from Steve, and Steve says no. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want to give them to him. Uh, he's like, that wasn't the deal, guys. Like we agreed we would do this together. Mm-hmm. We would all agree on this stuff. I don't agree. Like you guys made the album you wanted to make. I don't know why this is different now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the story goes that Chris called and they had a conversation, and he uh, uh, eventually relinquishes the tapes. Um, the tapes are uh, given to Scott Litt, and by my understanding, 
he reworks at least the songs that were serviced as singles, right? Like the That's label, what I also understand, yeah. Yeah, the label needs to make sure that they have something that they can sell off of this album, and they don't need to change the whole thing, and I'm sure there's a million conversations that go on that we'll never know about mm-hmm. behind the scenes of like what is staying and isn't staying. Um, but ultimately, like that album... Is and and I'm interested. I don't know what your history is with In Utero, but um, that album winds up being this odd mix of what they genuinely made there, and then what was altered to be commercially viable. Mm-hmm. Um, and like maybe that's a compromise. Like maybe that's okay. I I think Steve probably has some. Uh, some conflicting feelings about it, especially because when you talk about Steve Albini and people sing his praises, like in utero is the bullet next to surfer Rosa as like, look, this guy did surfer Rosa. He did uh pod, right? The breeders. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he did, and he did in utero and everyone's like, Oh my God, that's like one, two, three, like the, the top, top of the pops. Totally. Um, totally. And, and so like, he probably feels a little conflicted with the fact that like in utero wasn't released in the way that he recorded it. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm trying to remember, uh, I've, I've watched so many interviews and read so much the last couple of days. I'm trying to, Mm. I'm trying to find that specific topic. I don't remember specifically if he addresses, you know, he's, he's just that kind of pragmatic kind of guy where he's just like, you know, I, I, did what I was paid to do and mm-hmm. you know, I, I moved on to other things. It's like, it is, yeah. they can do what they want with it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. also I actually, in looking up some of the information about in utero just now, I was wrong on the date. It was 93. So it had not yet, uh, been to the point in 95 when Steve purchased his own studio. Uh, mm, otherwise okay. they probably would have done it there. Um, just as a side note, but, uh, the interesting, interesting thing is that you can now hear Steve Albini's mix. Um, they, uh, you know, I don't, you might know more about the, the legalities Mm -hmm. behind certain things. Um, as far as who okays what and who approves what and who has to get paid for, this, that, and the other thing, but right. on the uh, anniversary edition, let me find it here. Of In Utero? On the, I think it's on the Super Deluxe. There's so many different versions. Of course, yeah. I mean, you got a band that had three albums and is one of the most iconic bands of the past like yeah, 30 years. You just got to find new things to package it as. Uh, super deluxe, you said? Yeah, because there's there's like a regular 20th anniversary deluxe version, and then there's the mm-hmm. super deluxe version. Right. Um, you get the Snyder, Snyder Cut of In Utero. You get the Snyder Cut. Yeah. Um, where you could, they're on, there's so many different tracks on this super deluxe. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, look at this. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I'm there are, you do have the Steve yeah. Albini mixes. Um, that you can hear and you can kind of 
a b it and listen to the differences um in the different mixes of the song so it's interesting it's 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 not you know it's not very common to have that kind of thing happen where people end up clamoring for the original mix uh of the song um i think you can even get it on vinyl now but uh it's probably crazy expensive the way the way that things are yeah he um but so on the heels of of all that obviously like massively impactful album yep um and and has hits come off of it um it does sustain nirvana's position it's not a it's not it they didn't fall off um and he is vocally critical of it saying that the record in stores doesn't sound like the record that was made Mm -hmm. it it's still them singing and playing their songs the quality of it still comes across but you know he's he's making his statement he's unabashedly feels the way that he feels and he feels very strongly about us he's very confident in his abilities to do yes he is thing and the (laughs) thing is recording the artist in the way that they are want to represent themselves um but because of that, because of being combative and being set in his ways, he becomes very unpopular with major record labels. Oh, of course, like, <laughs> he could have been. He could have been the the guy who then everybody at uh, Interscope and Sony and whatever went yeah. to, and instead he is he is kind of uh, dismissed as is hard to work with. And again, I don't think he cared that much. No, if anything, he, he probably preferred it. Yeah. Exactly. That's just who he is. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, uh, yeah, let me go cry about it in the corner. Like, <laughs> exactly. I already hated you, so I'm glad that you guys are on the same page with me now. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. wants to. He's just, and that just comes from his punk roots. He doesn't want to be involved in all that crap. He's gonna do what he feels is right, and he doesn't care what you think. And to a lot of people that comes across like, you know, he's an ass or something, but he's, you know, just sticking to his personal convictions and you got to respect him for that. And, you know, for all of the, you know, negativity that the major labels tried to, um, tried to spin about him. Um, he's actually a, just a really kind person. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a story of a young, uh, James Murphy of LCD sound system, mm-hmm. uh, writes Steve a letter. And then just, is just like, you know, I love all this stuff that you do. Like I'm trying to build a studio, like, you know, how, where do I start? And, Steve just starts sending him like diagrams and uh, instructions and like all this stuff. And, and it's blowing uh, James Murphy's mind because he's just like, I just, I just wrote a letter to like an inspirational figure of mine. And he's like sending me like hand drawn uh, diagrams of like how to do things properly and how to, how to mic things properly and all this stuff. And it's like, he's overwhelmed by it. And, um, so he's just, you know, he's that kind of guy that he'll, he'll give you the shirt off of his back, but you know, he'll tell you the truth and you're not going to like it at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> just one of those types. Um, so, th- so then he goes on, I mean, he's ultimately recording hundreds and hundreds so uh, many. of band, at, at bands at that point. Um, and so I, I think we flag a few things here or there. I mean, the, the one right on the heels of In Utero, right around that same time, for me, um, is Jawbreaker. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, like, that's one of the places where I actually have my, my toes in the water a bit. Like, I was and am a huge Jets to Brazil fan. Mm-hmm. That that was my entry point, and then I went back to Jawbreaker and the the rough punk nature of what Jawbreaker was was very shocking to me um because I was so used to what um what Jets to Brazil is. Yeah, Jets to Brazil and doesn't sound punk at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Um and, and so, but it makes sense now like knowing that Albini uh did uh, 24 hour revenge therapy. He's mm-hmm. not credited. I actually, I should go look on the shelf, but it said that he's not credited in the album's notes. They, he was named as Fluss instead. <laughs> um, but again, like he charged Nirvana a hundred thousand dollars cause he's working with a major label, but like he's working with these guys, he charges them three grand, you know, like the, they show up. Um, he, he had just, uh, he had just expanded the studio in his house at this point. So he's like, he's scaling here. Yeah. Um, at, he's, he's quoted in, this is 93 again. So right around that time, he's mm-hmm. saying he's, he's recording somewhere up to a hundred records a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just crazy. to pay the bills. That's crazy. <laughs> like, because it's he's three not days taking, a record. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, he's because he's not taking these huge paychecks with all this fine print, he's churning this stuff out because yeah. he's got the know how to get it done quickly and well. Like, right. he's got this skill set that he can do. Um, he's approaching so he's it saying, like he's in the like service industry or something. Like, he, like, right. he has the approach of a plumber. He's like, I did the job, job's done. Right. I don't own any part of this house that I just worked on. I'm moving on to the next job as quickly as possible because I have bills to pay. Well, I've just because I've just bought this brand new swanky roto router that I'm going to be able to do all this <laughs> other stuff yes, with. The equipment. And I need to pay I need to pay for the equipment. So he's like, I just bought all this very expensive analog equipment. Yep. He's like he's not he's he's not sparing any expense because that is the tools that he lives and dies by to get the um, accurate sound, of course. Right. And so he's got to he's got to turn this stuff out. Um but again, you get into this weird thing where uh like they recorded uh those mixes but then uh, ultimately, like some of the stuff was tweaked. It isn't exactly what was done there, but it because um, he he wasn't as ingrained there. It seems like it didn't cause the contention. Um, yeah, that that it did with Nirvana. Like he agreed to be with Nirvana, and he's like, "But this is what we're gonna make." Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with this one, he had said like. I don't want to be named on this. My role on this isn't important. The band wrote the songs. They performed everything, you know, so he calls it refracted light. You know, he's mm-hmm, just like, mm-hmm. you're, you guys are, are the stars here. You're the ones generating all of this. I'm just part of the equipment, you know? Yep. Um, exactly. 
So, and, and actually, so Jawbreaker's in that scene. The the crazy thing that happens next is like Jawbreaker's opening for um, Nirvana. Yes, they <laughs> are framed as like they're going to be the breakout. Uh, next generation the next green day of that scene um and they get slapped for the next move that they make as selling out Mm -hmm. and their fan base implodes and it's almost like it's almost like uh the albini uh mantra like they flew too close to the sun Mm -hmm. and kind of or broke the code i guess is the better way of saying it like they signed to the major label and everybody like everybody walked away from it yeah because everyone was getting burned by these the 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 sellout syndrome Mm -hmm. um so it's just interesting like that you know (laughs) the thing that steve keeps talking about winds up being the undoing for jawbreaker as they're about to hit their their trajectory Um, so, uh, another one for me is a fair amount later, but it's, uh, uh, the things we lost in the fire. I'm not super familiar with, with low, but I know this album a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, sonically, it's very different from some of the stuff that we're talking about here, right? I mean, low is very quiet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's a beautiful album, um, and you know they were they another band that had a vision, and they brought it to Steve. Steve's not the guy who's trying to make music that is quietly representing what loud music is doing. You know, right. he is Mister Abrasive in his own personal life, but then he's so he's able to do this. You know, mm-hmm. like he was able to to take their vision and sculpt it. uh, It's just so impressive that he can just kind of shift like that, you know? Yeah. And, and well, I mean, he did do um, the slint record, which is not, they do have some loud abrasive sections, but you know, they're, they're closer to low than most of the other stuff that he was doing at the time. Um, So there is that. And I love that record. Um, some of the favorites here for me, other than what we've already talked about, um, that first Breeders album, uh, mm. Pod. Um, I love. I if if I had to choose between that Breeders record or you know Last Splash, which everybody knows as their big breakout with with Cannonball on that it has and everything. Yeah. I I would choose Pod. I just love how that record sounds. It's Okay. Uh it's got some amazing tracks. Of course, there's the Beatles cover on that, which I'm a sucker for. Um and I just love that record. Um I don't know too much about Steve's involvement in the recording of that record other than, mm-hmm. you know, Kim uh coming from the Pixies was of course impressed with what Steve could do and asked him to produce the first breeders record. And, you know, you can hear the similarities just sonically and, and particularly in the drums. I think that's kind of his signature. And even Dave Grohl talks about feeling like one of his biggest, like life 
accomplishment. Oh, and I, I think he talks about this in that first Sonic Highways episode that we talked about. Mm. Um, yeah. The Foo Fighters series where they go to different cities and record a new song in different cities. Right, um, right, 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 right. He, in that, he talks about how recording in utero with Steve and getting that, he calls it the quote-unquote Steve Albini sound with his drums is like one of his biggest life accomplishments. Really? Yeah. And um, they, they just sound huge and accurate. And um, you can hear everything that the drummer is doing, but you can also at the same time hear just how massive it is, especially a drummer like Dave, who is just mm-hmm. smashing the drums as, as hard as he possibly can. And it sounds incredible. Um, so I got to watch Sonic Highways. I've never seen it. It, yeah, it seems so cool. It's in my personal opinion, it's kind of hit or miss. Some of the episodes are kind of like, all right, like even the Austin episode, me being an Austinite, I'm kind of like, eh, like, all right, like, come on, let's get, <laughs> let's just hear the song. Um, <laughs> but that first Chicago episode, honestly, like, you, you know, you want to learn a little bit more about Steve Albini. A huge segment of that episode is about about him and his early life and, and the early punk Chicago scene. And, um, you know, they interview him, uh, and they use that interview quite a bit in that episode. So weird. Cause um, he had nothing to do with that album though. Right. They just used his studio. That's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. Butch Butch is still, he, cause he produces the whole thing, but, uh, yeah, they rented out fig who did never mind. Exactly. Produces the album that's recorded in Steve Albini's studio. And I don't know if if they have any kind of relationship or if they hate each other or they're indifferent or whatever, but you know, they're, they're not seen on, on camera together at least, uh, in, in the episode, as far as I remember. But, uh, yeah, they just rented out his studio and there's parts where he's talking about, some of the really interesting aspects of the studio um, per Steve's design. Um, For example, the separation of the floor from the wall, like they're not connected to create more space where there wouldn't normally be to allow the low frequencies to do what they need to do. It's just like crazy stuff that even me with my like a literal education in music acoustics and sound engineering, I can't wrap my mind around. <laughs> it's just yeah. beyond me. Yeah. That's like um, those cherry notes that people taste in wine where I'm like, I don't taste I, like wine. Maybe it's there, but maybe it's there. And <laughs> yeah, I just, exactly. I am not able to, to An figure oaky it out. Nuttiness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the other one that I can speak to here, uh, at least a little bit is the cloud. Nothing's record. Yeah. Same. Um, Okay, yeah. so we have we have some crossover here. So tell tell me about your yeah. Well, so I worked with Dylan a bunch on some stuff. He's a, oh, okay. he, I mean he's so young when he started off, and he yeah. was doing this kind of cool like indie pop stuff. Um, and I remember when this album came out, Attack on Memory. Yeah, it was um, a change for them. Yeah, it, it, like a lot of people were talking about it. It was it was like oh my god, what is this? And then. Dylan is kind of talking about how like this is what he wanted the band to be like this is the stuff it kind of like Kurt he's just like this is the stuff that I like listening to yeah I want to make the album that's similar to what I like you Mm -hmm. know um 
he he was bored with what he was doing before um and he really wanted to kind of break out of the routine of what he was being defined as but again like he's a 20 year old guy at this point so like he's also pushing against like he's he's dealing with a lot of transitional times in his life just in general as this kind of celebrated mm-hmm. like indie rock starlet like in in that time um but it's funny because he talks about as i was digging in on this a little bit he mm-hmm. talks about the exact thing that is so albini where he's just like he went in and albini set it up and recorded it and left him alone. He didn't yep. make any suggestions. And played he, Scrabble on his phone, <laughs> is how the story according goes. According <laughs> to Dylan, yeah. I mean, Albini says that he was just, like, reading stuff and, like, not interfering with the recording process because he was just going to let it be what it was. Yeah. And he said, like, look, he jumped in at times when it was something that wasn't, that well, didn't gel. And, and he elaborates on this... Um, in another, I can't remember if it was an interview or, mm. um, it, it might've been like the ask me anything that he did, but the, the Scrabble thing and the reading dry material thing is actually a technique to not mess with the sound too much. To not have influence, right? Yeah. as it's not even so much influence because he's still trying to just, either way, he's trying to make the band sound as accurately like the band as possible. Mm. But if you're just laser focused on the recording session, you can overcorrect and you can just out of like tunnel vision, start fiddling with stuff that doesn't need to be fiddled with. Yeah. So the, the technique or the, I mean, I guess you could call it a technique of being, of keeping a very um, dry and um, uninteresting task in front of you, whether it's playing Scrabble or reading like technical manuals or parts catalogs and stuff like that. You're not so engrossed in what you're doing that you're no longer listening. But Mm -hmm. what you're doing is keeping keeping enough of a focus off of it that you still hear if something is wrong and it's like, Oh, that needs to be fixed. Right. But you're not so honed in that you're over tweaking it and over producing with it and messing with stuff that doesn't actually need to be messed with. Um, and I can, I can see that I can, um, somewhat identify with, with that, thinking and and the way that that is um i when i've created and made music in the past and during the mixing phase you've listened to the song so many times that you know doing something dry to distract you from the sound in front of you Mm -hmm. is is actually pretty helpful and it's kind of ingenious um so he you know it, it turned out to be this thing where like, Oh, he did so little that he sat there on his phone playing Scrabble the whole time. But, um, you know, I think the, the way that that record sounds speaks for itself because it's just, it sounds like exactly the way it, it sounds like a live 
recording of the band almost. That's kind of his his thing. The band sounds the way that they sound. His job is to capture it the way that yeah. they sound. Um, and the other thing that I'll just float like in line with what Dylan's saying here, mm-hmm. there's all these other, cause it, it hasn't stopped. Like he's still doing yeah. this all the way through the pandemic. Uh, like Laura Jane Grace put out, uh, an album last year that he produced that she went in and, and sat with him and recorded. And she comes out of it being like, I, she was like almost intimidated. Like he, kind of insists is like there's different takes on this so who knows what's actually right, being laid down right. but he kind of insists on doing two takes and that's it you know like it's like if you don't get it in two takes like you're not going to get it but also he loses the authenticity of it I oh think. definitely so she walks away from it being like yeah i just i really needed to get it done in those two takes because like it's like don't know what was going to happen otherwise yeah. you know yeah <laughs> um but she was also like but he was right. Like you walk away yep. from it and you hear it and you're like, oh man, maybe that, maybe if I had done one more take of that and then you hear what he delivers and you're like, oh no, he was right. The second take, that's all I really needed. Yes. You know, I it's, needed two takes and I'm done. It's yeah. always the second take. <laughs> it's so crazy. In my it's so experience, crazy. it's always the second take. Yeah. Um, um, so, obviously he's worked with a ton of other artists. Just, yeah. you know, we mentioned Slint. He did an album with uh, Jarvis Cocker, the the lead singer of Pulp, uh, Mogwai, the Jesus Lizard, Chevelle, Helmet, uh, worked with the Stooges, a cheap trick. He produced an album for Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, like uh, the, the Veruca Salt. The guy's pervasive. And, uh, you know, we don't have enough time to, t- to talk about all of these amazing records that he's produced. Um, but I just think that, and he's still alive, but his legacy is just so ever present and it's there. And it's, it's, it's something that musicians specifically really Mm. appreciate. You know what I mean? Record executives hate him. (laughs) but musicians that understand what he's doing they appreciate somebody like him so much and i don't know that there's really anybody else like that there's nobody doing what he does no when we were talking about doing this episode one of the things that made me kind of excited because again it is out of my wheelhouse at least in in my personal uh familiarity is that it's so divergent um, from what you usually hear, especially more so now with producers. Producers are almost like co-writers. They're almost a part of the band. Yep. Um, they have their fingerprints on things more and more by design, and this was such uh, the antithesis of that. Um, there's, there's, it's weird. There's, there's two things as we kind of wrap. Mm-hmm. Maybe talking about his ethos a little bit, like. There's two things about him there's this that stand out to me one that I I appreciate a lot but I can't wrap my head around mm-hmm. and that is um his ability to hear the potential of music in a different way so what mm-hmm. I mean by that is when I hear something quote unquote new 
it shocks me, you know? Like, when I, even though the, the Gaslight Anthem thing is very derivative of Bruce and the replacements and a bunch of other things, like, it felt new enough for me where I was like, oh, my God, how did somebody make something new, you know? Like, right. I, I, to, my disposition is my assumption is that at some point we're going to run out of songs, you know, like there's only so many gonna... combinations of notes, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. 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 I'm like, eventually we're just going to run out of stuff. Like, I don't know how people keep coming up with new creative ways to make stuff. And Steve sees the exact opposite. He, he talks at one point cause somebody, he always gets asked about his minimalism, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he strips things down. He mics it up with analog stuff uh, analog gear and he gets it done and they're like how do you stay so dynamic with such a minimalist setup and he looks at it and he's like think of a chessboard there's all these different pieces but that's it you know you just have those pieces and you could look at that and be like well then there's not a whole lot of options there but he says like it would require more time than the universe has existed to actually play every single game of chess that is possible. That's true. So he's like, there are so many things that just a small shift here or there can create this enormous number of outcomes. Um, And it's kind of striking me, like as I think about it and as I read through this where I was like, it, it makes me see music a little differently because again, I'm always anticipating like when I hear a song from a band I love, I'm like, well, that's probably going to be the last time that they make anything that I'm going to be that excited about because like, <laughs> how are they ever going to do best that? How are yeah. they ever going to reinvent <laughs> anything this. else? Yeah, exactly. Um, but what I do get from him and what I do really gel with is his um, aversion to maximalism, if you will. You know, like... This mm-hmm. industry is rife with people, both artists and then the latchers on who are, they have this ambition to like get a bigger house and get swankier things and just like a life of excess. Mm-hmm. And he is so against that. He's just like, I need what I need. Yep. I do what I do. I can do my job well. Leave me alone. <laughs> like Pretty much. Like, like I can do my thing. I like that resonates with me so so much where like yeah in in realizing that this person is such an important beacon in this industry it makes me feel less alienated that there is somebody out there who feels these things and yeah. and can act upon it and have this success and like yeah that's the big persist. thing yeah. cuz i'm sure there are thousands and probably tens of thousands of working man's engineers out there that have Mm. these little hole in the wall studios that we've never heard of that have a very similar ethos, probably inspired by him, but Mm -hmm. you know, have just have a similar outlook and they just want to do what they do because they love doing it. And you know, we may never know who these people are, but right. somehow Steve point. with his like punk rock working man's ethos, you know, he's not a household name necessarily, but music fans know the name mm-hmm. and he's made a mark for himself in the music world at large. I mean, even with just surfer Rosa and in utero right there, 
that he's made his mark on the on an industry that that he kind of hates. Yeah. <laughs> he just wants to play the music that he wants to play and record the music the way that those artists want to put out their music. Right. But he will never have to do anything that he doesn't want to do. And that is, yeah. uh, that's enviable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I agree. And that's it. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> that's Steve Albini. You know, it's wonderful. I love yeah. it. Um, but yeah, you should listen to, sh- well, okay. As long as you don't have your kids in the car, you should mm-hmm. listen to shellac. <laughs> I will. Well, so shellac is, is like big black. Like it also well, is just very inappropriate. It's, it's, it's not, it's not Doesn't big black. Back. It's not, okay. it, it's, it's like op- almost every song has the, the little E, the explicit lyrics warning mm-hmm. on it. So it's not kid friendly, but it's not, it's not like, uh, excessively over the top, um, offensive on purpose, <laughs> like big black was, um, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's it's really great music, and if you if you dig the guitar tone, then you're just gonna love it. The drums sound great. Some people are turned off by the guitar tone because it's it's a very very. Uh, I mean, we we've used the word abrasive so many times, and I I used the example of plugging the guitar into a microwave, but it's almost more like maybe a guitar plugged into a chainsaw or a belt sander or something. Oh man. It's just okay. a really, really raw and abrasive guitar tone. Um, but it works. It works really well for what they do. The drums and bass sound great. The rhythm section is, is nearly perfect. And then, you know, the, the front and center is Steve howling and, um, you know, singing songs about praying to God to, to kill somebody or whatever other crazy, you know, uh, song concepts he comes up with. Um, and it's, it's great. I love it. It's music to be played very loudly and it sounds fantastic. Um, I am looking right now cause now, now I'm just interested. Like I'm going to go into this cause I mean, the way you've described it, I feel like you've expanded my mind a little bit. Um, yeah. uh, I'm seeing an album called Excellent Italian Greyhound yes. from 2007. Do you know that one? A little bit. I'm, okay. I'm, you so, know, I cut my teeth on the earlier albums at Action Park and uh, Terraform. Okay. Um, so there's one, there's one, there's a song on this called Genuine Lulabelle. And in the notes here, it says that it features clips of Strong Bad from Homestar Runner reciting lines from the song, which sounds like now I'm just going to go listen to this immediately because I love Homestar Runner. And also, I want to know the backstory to that. So I I don't know. Like that, it's funny (laughs) because that's the album that I probably know the least about. Um, I was blasting Dude Incredible today. Um, and obviously listened to a ton of, uh, those first two albums. Um, and, um, I listened to a little bit of a thousand Hertz when it came out in 2000. Um, that, that one was funny because I, I remember buying it 
at this, this small record shop, not the one that I worked at, but a different one, um, okay. in, in Hyannis, Massachusetts. And, um, it was like this, it's, it's designed to look like, um, a box that would contain like the, the reel to reel tape, uh, for, right. for a recording console. Yeah. And, um, it, it, it even kind of opens the same way. It's not, it's not like a cut open sleeve on one side, like a normal, you know, it's like a case record. That's kind of just yeah. like a box almost. Oh, okay. Yeah. And like, so I was like, okay. So I opened it and then along with the vinyl record, there's a CD inside as well. It's the CD of the album. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. Oh my God. <laughs> now I have the CD too. <laughs> cool. So, um, that was a cool one. And, but it's like, yeah, that first song, is kind of intense on that album. That's Man. the one called uh I think it's called Prayer to Go- Prayer to God and it's literally is the entire song is him praying and pleading for for God to kill one of his enemies. It's just like it's gets very intense. <laughs> but the music is fantastic. So wow. It's an and adventure. also <laughs> I saw that he won uh his second poker world series recently like yes and we we didn't even really talk about that did we but that's so weird that's another one of his pastimes and um yeah he he uh plays poker you know very at a professional level (laughs) and there and he says himself that there there have been some times where you know having a good week playing poker is what paid the salaries of the people that work for him at electric oh, audio. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> because he doesn't take royalties. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, it's crazy to me. I, it makes sense, I guess. Cause he's the, he is so meticulous and detail oriented. He's got that mind of metal and wheels that yeah, like, very meticulous. I bet you he figures things out in poker that he can just, he's, probably just so calculated and everything it kind of makes sense he's so stoic too like he's never any expression on his face (laughs) you know what i mean just deadpan um especially in his later years you know you might get a a a snide like you know sid vicious kind of look from him in the earlier years during the punk days but uh yeah just a stoic dude cool guy very uh upfront and to the point um respectable ethos and uh just has such an incredible and um inspiring method for recording albums and um i just love the way that his records sound and there's really there's really nothing like it yeah that's steve albini in a nutshell or in an hour and 40 so, minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had to talk about Coolio, though. That was important. So yeah, for this sure. will be a little bit longer because of that. But um, yeah. but as usual, um, really enjoyed uh, talking with you, Liam, about, yeah. about this topic. Um, glad you also got your mind expanded a little bit, too. Um, you'll definitely have to... You'll have to hook me up with some knowledge on uh, Gaslight Anthem. Yeah, at, the, at some point for sure. Yeah. Um, but thank you, listener, for listening to Retro Groove. We're part of the Retro Logic family of podcasts. You can find us on Discord on the Retro Logic server, and you can also find us on Twitter at Retro Groove underscore Pod. 
we love talking to folks on Twitter. It's always a good time. Um, come to the, the Discord and, and have fun with us there, posting memes, talking about what you've been listening to and all that good stuff. Uh, we'd love to have you. But until next time, uh, adios. See ya.